Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In this episode, we'll be continuing our look at Our Friends from Frolox 8. Uh, Dick published this novel in, in 1970. It's a novel that is one of his, his best dystopias. It's a novel about posthumanism, and, and that's, those are really tied together here. The posthumans are the source of this, the dystopia in this particular, particular novel. Most humans who don't, aren't either the new men, meaning they have enhanced mental capacity, or are precogs and psychics, these are called the so-called unusuals, are really deemed to second-class status. Uh, sometime in the past, an advocate for the old men, the regular humans, goes off Earth, promising to bring back help from another planet. Um, meanwhile, movement is developing on Earth to overthrow the state or challenge the state, uh, led by the words of a man who's in jail, um, William Corden. Uh, we meet uh, Nick Appleton early in the novel, and he's our everyman. He's the man who's going to lead us through our story. He's our, our main character. And he gets drawn into the movement, resistance movement, called the Underman Movement. And um, by the midpoint of the novel, not only has he been mixed up into this movement, uh, falling in love with a, a young girl who's an activist in the movement, a 16-year-old girl named Charlie. He also finds himself captured by the movement and arrested. And he's of special interest to the state, to his state players, particularly um, our head of the police, Barnes, and our, our basically our, the president of this world, uh, a man named Graham. And they are trying to figure out why it is that this man converted at this time to the movement. They're also dealing with the fact that news has come that Pravoni is, is very quickly returning to Earth with his savior from abroad. And there's also internal conflicts between the new men and the unusuals that's making a political situation on Earth quite difficult. So with all this on their plate, uh, we enter into the halfway, we get to the halfway point in the novel and, and we're going to see how uh, they respond to this. Primarily, this section will, will focus on the activities of the people in government and Provoni as he is returning to, to Earth. Well, there's a lot going on in this novel, so I urge you just to go back and listen to the first two episodes or, or read it yourself. It's, it's a really good novel, and it's, uh, it's a novel that, that has a lot of, reminds us a lot of some of Dick's earlier works, and that is the political dystopia. It's interested in how political change can come about. Um, but it also has some of uh, the more thing, some of the aspects where we're used to from Dick's works, from his later works, like you know, an interest in the drug culture, the the young attractive woman, um, some kind of funky mystical aspects. Not so much in this novel, but but a little bit with the the character from Frolox Eight, the, the alien character, we get some some of that. It's also, I think, the culmination of Dick's writing on posthumans. He He's been writing about post-humans his whole career from some of his earliest stories. In fact, I just found out the other day that one of his uh, works he wrote as a, as a juvenile back like in the 40s, um, before he ever became a professional writer, and, you know, one of those stories was a precog story. So he's been thinking about post-humans for a very, very long time, well before the Golden Man kind of ushered in that, 
that new interpretation of the posthuman. And Dick would continue to play with the idea of posthumans throughout um, his, his professional career. And this is like the ultimate examination of them. I, I'm sure there are posthumans in later stories, but uh, especially, uh, what's it, uh, Flow My Tears, the policeman said, has them. But this is a more well-developed look at, at them. So anyways, chapter 17, that's where we're going to pick up. Uh, this is set uh, with Provoni. He's still on his ship returning to Earth. The ship is encased by this alien Morgo. He's from Frolux 8, so he's a Frolixian. And they're still talking about, as they were previously, you know, philosophical issues, but, but largely about how they will, you know, what will be the impact of his message? What will be the impact of his return? What will it be on, on Earth? And, and what will this kind of conquest or this transformation uh, be like? And essentially, uh, Provoni here admits, his name's Thoris Provoni, he admits that there's going to have to be some kind of purge of the old men and the unusuals. And, and they're going to have to be getting rid of because it's kind of like either them or us. Either us, either the old men or the posthumans are going to survive this conflagration. To maintain power, they will purge the Endermen movement. And if they arrive, they're going to have to somehow eliminate them entirely, which turns out to be what the plan essentially is. Um, they, he starts to get more and more news about the situation at home as he gets closer and closer to Earth as well through, through media accounts and reporting and stuff like that. And interestingly, the second half of the book has more and more of a role for the media. So um, Dick, from time to time, does write about the media and you get more of it here, just like we did in Counterclock World, where we get the media really taking over some of the storytelling that happens here in, in this novel as well. So they end up getting the complete situation at home as well. What has happened, the execution of Corden, the conflict between the new men and the unusuals. And I'll just remind what it is in some of the previous episodes. The main conflict between the new men and the unusuals goes beyond their kind of back and forth of, of political power. It's that the new men are actively trying to create technologies that will replace the jobs of, of the unusuals. Essentially, the unusuals are at risk of having their jobs automated by, by machinery. First, a machine called the Big Ear, which will read the thoughts of every, every human, making the, the, the psychics um, not unnecessary. Um, so um, they, well, uh, the Frolixian Morgo asks a question that perhaps we've been asking, and if you've read Dick's works up to this point, you'd be asking the same thing, and that is essentially why not work from within? Why not say let's, you know, deal with, you know, why don't you reform society from within? Why do you get help from outside, right? And, and basically, we're given three models of change in this story. One is kind of the social movement, the grassroots movement of resistance by oppressed people. One is shifting dynamics within, which is kind of the classic Philip Dick argument, is that these systems are unstable and they'll kind of break down by their own logic in a way. And then there's the, the help from the outside. And all three are played with here. So although this is a story ultimately about getting help from an outsider, it's not the only path path out. And, and Morgo here acknowledges that maybe, you know, a, a change from inside will will be better. In this chapter 18, we're also getting a little bit of a window into what the Frolixians actually actually do and how they are a bit like a, a an interplanetary peacekeeping force almost. Like they that's part of their 
identity and part of their job that they give for themselves is when aliens come to seek them out for help, they'll come and help them. And they, and they, they, they live very long lives and they'll be able to do this often. And it's just part of, part of what they, they do as Frelixians. Now, at the end of um, this chapter, Provoni admits that he's a new man and um, that he's not the typical underman or, or oh, he's not even an old man anymore, that he is actually a new man, that, but he's kept that quiet, he's kept it secret, and he's, um, in a sense, a traitor to his, his class or to, his, um, to, to the posthumans, to the new men. So we get to chapter 18. Actually, chapter 18 is where we get the actual discussion about why not work from, from within. I guess I confuse the chapters a little bit. But in chapter 18, Morgo admits that he knows that he's a new man because he's been reading his mind and he's been a part of his, uh, basically a symbiotic relationship since they, they met. But he, he basically discusses what, you know, with him, why not be part of the ruling class? Why not work from within? Why not just reform things as a, a, a new man. And we see that's possible. We, we, we actually see Barnes and Graham faced with pressure from Provoni, faced from a social movement, are willing to make changes in their system to make it more hum, humane. In fact, Nick Appleton, or every man, listens to these reforms and says that these are the most humane reforms you can imagine ever being implemented by, by a government. Now, of course, his view is skewed by living in a dictatorship his entire life. But still, you know, it is capable of reform. So Morgo's question here, I think, is apt. Why not just, just reform from within? And Provoni's answer isn't that it's, it's a bad idea. He just doesn't think it's possible to, to change a structure that large. Quote, I couldn't just lodge 10,000 civil servants from G1 to 003, all the way up to the Extraordinary Committee for Public Safety and Committee Chairman Graham. I was afraid that if they found out, they would kill me. My parents were afraid when I was a child, all of them. New men and usuals, and the old men and undermen. I could harbinger a race of super, supermen if I became public. The upheaval would be vicious, and I would disappear. And they begin to watch for other people like me. See, what's sort of special about him is that he's a new man, and that's his how he calls himself. But he's also got some aspects of being an unusual too. So he's like a, a super kind of posthuman. Um, but interestingly, he's the one who perhaps could be a possible, a possibly bridging the gap between new men and, and unusuals, and their own internal conflict. In their conversations, we also learn that the Frolixians are not entirely benevolent here, that they do have desires. They're, they're not conquerors, but they seek to learn from and acquire technology and information from, from the worlds that they help, right? So... Um, Basically, he says, we're going to steal them, and this kind of shocks Provoni. But really what he wants is, is their distinctive technologies, right? He even says, like, if you were to take us to the 18th century England, back to that time, we'd still find something valuable that we would want there. So they're kind of collectors, um, and they pay for their collection through being a problem solver for societies in, in, in crisis. Now, as they're having this pretty long conversation, as you see, it covers two chapters, and I've and fairly good chunk of the novel, about 10% of the novel right here, is this, this long conversation between the two. Uh, they get an attack from Earth. So Earth has been alerted to their presence, knows where they're at. Um, in fact, in the previous chapters, they, they alerted a picket um, by accident. And so an attack is coming from Earth. And, and they're going to have to commit their first act of violence against the regime of the, of the post-humans. 
So in chapter 19, we jump to the point of view of, of, of Graham, who is dealing with all these crises, as I've said. He's dealing with the Underman movement. He, he's just arrested Nick and Charlie, and he's trying to interrogate them. He's fallen in love with Charlie. He's still got his problems with his wife. He's got this invasion to deal with that it's not clear how they can stop this alien invasion. They don't even know what form the aliens will take or what they'll look like. And all of this is going on. Plus, he's, got the, he's worried about the new men developing their technology, which will make him redundant. So he's, he's pretty frustrated. But he gets the news that their ship they sent was destroyed. Um, Graham is increasingly fascinated with this young girl, Charlie, with her. She's got this, like, pig pug nose, you know. I don't know if Dick had a thing for that. But it's, you know, all the characters that kind of have the hots for Charlie in this novel are all fascinated by her little cute little pug nose. Um, but he's become increasingly fascinated with Charlie. And then he has a meeting with various officials of the government talking about the, the situation in front of them. And Graham dares them to basically vote no confidence in him. But now he's a psychic, so he's able to read their minds. And he reads their mind enough to realize that he's going to win the vote. So he dares them to go ahead and do it. You know, it's, it's a convenient thing of being a psychic. Is you, you kind of know the results of these votes before... Uh, they're made, but in fact, they do vote to remain confidence in Graham through this crisis with a six to four, four, four vote. vote. Um, so with that out of the way in this kind of attempt to dethrone him out of the way, he goes to pursue his meeting with Charlie, which is basically a meeting uh, filled with sexual passion. And I, I've talked in the previous episodes about the conflict between Barnes and Graham in their approaches. Graham is emotional. He's driven by personal desires, personal feelings, whether it's the desire to save the members uh, of, of the Underman movement who worked at the printing press he used to work with, or his desire to mix the execution of Corden with the assassination of his wife, who he hates and wants to divorce. Or even here with Charlie, he's, he's, he's just overwhelmed with kind of sexual desire for Charlie. In contrast, Barnes is interested in these people largely as, as test subjects, as, as everyman case studies that he can use to understand better why people are gravitating towards the, towards the, the movement. So a very big difference between these two sides of, of the state. Um, so this is before the black iron prison idea of Dick's later work, before the state is really this hegemonic, totalitarian, you know, a totality essentially of, of brutal evil. Um, the state, you know, he's still sympathetic with certain figures in the state, like he was in his 1950s dystopian um, uh, literature. I, I like that. I, 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 I don't. There's one thing I don't like about his later work is just uh, the way he sees the state. It, it loses all its character and all its complexity. And, and here we see a lot of it, especially in these two characters. Um, so he has this meeting with Charlie, and he's got like four guards with him, and she's able to escape from him and these four guards, which really amazes uh, Graham that she's able to do that. And it really shows her pluckiness and her, her skill and her, um, her ability to really command the scene. Um, but while listening to her, his, her mind, reading her mind during this interrogation before it went bad, he realizes his profound fondness or her profound fondness for Nick. And so he orders Nick's, Nick's death. Um, 
he but he wants now Nick's already been released after the previous interrogation he's had but he does he kind of reversed that order of letting him go and remember he's just released all the people from the prison camps all these former undermans have been released to return to their families and Nick's also been free as well but he kind of reverts that order and we see once again the state going right back to a repressive regime after its most benevolent act um, so just there's even said at one point in the novel that just because we shut down all the prison camps doesn't mean we can't build new ones from this point on um, but he orders Nick to be snuffed but he wants him snuffed when Charlie is present with him so he's got this cruel side to him of a the cruelness of a is it a jilted lover? That's not even the right term. What is it? The, the forsworn, the, the, the unrequited lover, I guess, is, is, you know, the anger of the unrequited love is on display here. Um, Graham to makes matters worse at this moment. Low point in the novel for him. He gets news that Provoni, from Provoni that releasing the prison camps is not going to be enough, that really a total regime change is going to be required if they're not if they're not going to fall through on this invasion. So some time passes, and where we return at the end of this chapter with with Nicholas, who is trying to find Charlie. He you know he's he's been released, but he hasn't you know seen Charlie, so he's trying to find her, and he decides to go to Denny's, which is her boyfriend's house. This the, the guy who originally got him into the the Underman movement. He thinks, oh, she'll go back there. So that's where he goes to try to find find Charlie. Now, this is the end of part two of, of the book. The, the book, Dick, divides into three parts. Um, part one, really setting up the situation. Part two, with this really surrounding the arrest and interrogation of Nick and Charlie. And then part three is going to be focusing on the return of Provoni and the impact that will have on the whole system. So we pick up with, uh, at the start of chapter part three with chapter 20. And right where we left off with Nicholas going to Denny's house. And um, Denny, you know, welcomes Nick in and they share a beer together. And Charlie's also has, has arrived, but she has just arrived like a few hours earlier. So she hasn't been there for a long time. And they they share a beer, the three of them. They each have a third of the beer. And, you know, like Charlie just gets a little bit because she's uh, kind of the end of the line and, and, and being a bit... Um, not treated fairly by Denny. Um, Dick makes sure to remind us of this. But they share this beer three ways. Remember, beer's illegal. So there's not much of it, and it's it's usually shared. Uh, every time we see beer being drunk, it's usually being shared by people. Um, and they're just coming to terms with a new the new world. Now, pissers come in. Pissers are like the, the secret police. They come in, fulfilling the orders to kill Nick in front of Charlie. Uh, Denny is killed in the fight, but eventually Charlie and Nick are, are able to get away. So that's, that's all that really happens in chapter 20. So chapter 21, and that's the last one I'm going to look at today. Chapter 21 opens with, with Cleo simply watching TV. Uh, she's flipping through the channels, but they're all out. And actually, a lot of the later part of the novel is going to be people in front of TV watching the news unfold. I like how Dick does this here. It's it's an interesting device. Um, a lot of it's actually going to be Nick and Charlie and a few other kind of under under men just hanging out together, um, minor characters, just watching TV, talking about how they want to be there with when a Provoni arrives, whenever actually going there, and and the kind of the class. I don't know. Is this a kind of a 
you know, hippies maybe in the 60s, maybe watching TV on an anti-war protest and talking about how they want to be there, but not actually arriving. I wonder if that's what Dick has in mind here. But that's the feeling I got during these scenes. But Cleo here is trying to watch TV and the channels are out. Nick arrives to get his clothes and leave. And he basically says he's going to leave, leave Cleo to be with Charlie. Um, during this moment, he's he's changed in the last uh, few hours due to his arrest, and he's been kind of he convinced, he's committed to at least helping Charlie uh, through this crisis. Now, meanwhile, Provoni is closer and closer to uh, his to his arrival, um, and Nick and Cleo have a bit of time to discuss why their relationship is at its end and why their relationship cannot really survive into a into a new order. That this whatever new thing is going to come due to the arrival, the arrival of Provoni and the arrival of the people from the aliens from Frolox, whatever it is, their relationship is not going to be something that can survive it. Their relationship is of the old order. He says, that's why I'm leaving you, because you don't understand anything. What does Provoni's return mean to you? The most important event in history, because with him... And then she makes a very banal response saying, the 30 years war was the most important event for history. So she's completely out of touch with the world happening around her. She's really... So really the story is of about Nick the Everyman becoming something more, becoming a central figure in, in, a, in a movement, becoming... Someone who can stand toe-to-toe with a leader by the end of the story. We'll see that in the next part. Um, but Cleo's not that. Cleo uh, is going to be a throwback. It's going to be someone of a previous era. Um, and, you know, For Dick, someone who had five wives, uh, it's hard not to imagine him thinking personally about these relationships. Um, so basically, the news tells them that they got 30 hours until Provoni will, will arrive. And so that's what we get through much of the rest of the chapter is these news reports about the arrival of Provoni. Most of the channels are out except those reporting this, this news. Now, at this point, the news reporters are still ideologically slanting their message, still saying that Provoni is a threat, he's dangerous, and um, it's still in propaganda mode. That's going to change as things, events go on. After Provoni finally arrives, it's going to become clearer and clearer that that this is a world-changing event, and you see the media start to pull back their their commitment to to the regime. At this point, though, they're still, you know, doing the classic kind of fake news thing where you you ask a question, right? I was actually shocked to to reread this when you think about how like the fake news media stuff works. You know how you know they'll pose a question. Fox News will do this, right? They'll pose a question. Uh, that is meant to elicit doubt. There's no evidence, right? But they just they just pose it as a question, and then that kind of gets interpreted in people's minds as a fact, right? Especially people who have a more conspiratorial mindset, and that's exactly the strategy used here by the by the news media who are trying to discredit Provoni before he even arrives. You know, they they say things like, "Oh, maybe he's really tired. He must be really tired after this long voyage," or. Um, you know, what is he doing with these aliens? Or these kind of questions that are supposed to kind of undermine whatever Provoni is trying to do. Now, the rest of Chapter 21 is a large, long conversation between Graham and his, his kind of new man nemesis. He's only been a name bandied about up to this point, but he's an imposing figure, and his name is Amos Ild. He's a new man with like a huge brain. He's got these huge granules. He's, you know, got the massive skull. Um, the King Mentat. If, if you will. And 
And basically, Graham is pushed to the edge, and he's calling for this man to be his advisor, taking him away from his work on the Big Ear Project, and that's what he's running at the time, to advise him uh, during this crisis. Um, Amos Ild demands that Graham use only him to, to use him as advisor and to basically fire all his advisors and don't seek the help of anyone else. And basically all Graham really wants from Amos Ild is to use his abilities as a new man, his mathematical ability to have mathematical calculations, his, his brilliance, to let him know the truth about Provoni. Is there really an alien? Is he really a threat? You know, how to defeat him? Those kinds of questions. And so they enter into this advising session, and it's all based on a, a type of science developed by Amos Ild and other new men called neutralonics. Neutralonics. And it's a nice little side uh, discussion in this, in this novel about neutralonics, and it's essentially an advanced form of statistics. Now, normally in statistics, you'll get probabilities, right? that there's a 80% probability that IQ scores will fall between 80 and, and 110 or something, right, or 120. You know, that's kind of how statistics work, right? Um, but neutralonics is some advanced form that gives absolute statistical certainty. It's not explained how Dick's not a mathematician. He's not, you know, this, if this is even possible, it's, you know, I don't know. But we've seen Dick playing with his idea before with big data. Uh, he's done it in Vulcan's Hammer. He did it in especially the, the Quarrel of Truth, a short story we looked at in which a machine takes in all this data and then draws conclusions based on what it sees. And we've seen it even in like the Unreconstructed M, which is a story about uh, uh, a story about a, a frame job, right? Because a detective work is reduced to basically collecting evidence and then throwing that evidence into a, into a database. So the idea that you can, through collection of data, reach absolute certainty in conclusions is something Dick has been playing with for, or for a while now. And this is an extension of that. So Amos Ild is going to use his neutral Alex to collect all the data on Provoni, on the Undermen, on the aliens, on everything they have, and then conclude whether Provoni is telling the truth that he's an alien or not. And he very quickly goes through the calculations and concludes that Provoni is not actually an alien. Now, after, as soon as he hears this, he turns to call for Precox to confirm because he's a cautious man and he doesn't quite trust the new man. And he says, well, let me just call, you know, we'll, we'll get 200 Precogs to make the same prediction. Now, the way the Precogs work is how they work in other Philip Dick novels, and that is they... They, they base on old probability. So a precog will maybe see five futures, but one will be uh, the most likely uh, or the one they see the most. And so that's the, usually the one they'll decide on. If you have three or four or ten precogs and they all point to one, then you're going to get fairly high level certainty that that's the future that is going to, uh, come, to come to pass. So he has this plan to call like 200 precogs or 10,000 precogs, even all the precogs, have them look into the future. This, of course, triggers... Amos Ild, who just was promised that he would be the sole exclusive advisor to, to Graham. Um, now, as the chapter ends, a new data point is revealed, which throws into disruption all of Amos Ild's calculations and all of and, and, and whatever other certainty there might have been in his conclusion. And that new datum is that Provoni is, in fact, a new man. And this was uh, something that was very well hidden. 
And so with that new bit of data disrupting the certainty of Amosil that that Provoni is not coming with an alien. With that, we're going to have to end this episode, I think, um, right at the moment of the climax of the story. So in the next episode, we'll look at chapters 21 through through 27, the final, final chapters of the novel, and we'll see what happens with uh, Graham, with Charlie and Nick, uh, Amos Ild and others, as Provoni indeed does arrive with an alien, as we know he will, as we know he, we know he has an alien, and, and we'll see what happens. Um, this chapter, not too much, I guess, taking place thematically. It's, it's not the thematically most strong section. It's, it's really pushing the plot along mostly. It seems to me, but uh, I think the key moments are Nick realizing he has to kind of have a new life in a new world, um, and more and more characters realizing they are entering into a new world. Whether it's Provoni realizing he's going to be successful, Nick realizing that that the world's changing. <clears throat> uh, you know, these are characters coming, you know, preparing themselves for for the change. What that change will actually be is something we'll have to look at in the next episode. So, um, as always, thanks for, for listening to my thoughts on, our, um, on these Philip Dick works. Uh, this one, again, if you're reading along, is Our Friends from Full Ox 8. So, um, let's check out the read, the, read the last few chapters of this novel. And I'll be back shortly with my final thoughts about this story. Uh, if you have any thoughts you want to share with me, please send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Thanks, as always, for listening. See you next time. To feel these